represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are the financial management priorities for the U.S. Department of Transportation? How is transportation transforming the way it operates? And what are the financial implications of some of the department's key initiatives? I'll explore these questions and so much more with a very special guest, Victoria Wasmer. Assistant Secretary for Budget and Programs and Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Department of Transportation. Victoria, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So can you start off by giving us, uh, maybe describe the mission and continued evolution of the U.S. Department of Transportation and in particular your portfolio? Absolutely. Well, um, you know, thanks again for inviting me to participate. It's really exciting to be able to be here and to talk about the Department of Transportation in this transformational time. So we were very fortunate to be able to refresh the mission of the Department of Transportation uh, with the launch of our new Department of Transportation strategic plan that goes from 2022 through 2026. And this was something that, in fact, Secretary Buttigieg personally uh, got involved with as well. And uh, I'm going to be able to share with you the mission. It's to deliver the world's leading transportation system, serving the American people and economy through the safe, efficient, sustainable, and equitable movement of people and goods. So I wanted to spend time on that because I think it's so important um, as we look at really the bold mission that we have and bold goals related to the historic investment that we have from the bipartisan infrastructure law which, uh, you know, authorized $660 billion in core surface transportation infrastructure as well as uh, additional infrastructure needs in other important arenas, including uh, airport infrastructure and port infrastructure. And we recently also had the Inflation Reduction Act, which also had additional investments for the Department of Transportation and really bold areas in climate and other important investments. So, I feel that the opportunity that we had, which is a really unique one for the Department of Transportation leadership, was that we had in coming on board as a new administration the opportunity to update our strategic plan after having passed this historic investment. And uh, typically we're uh, advocating for resources and an authorization, but this was a place where we had the alignment with the fiscal year 2023 budget submission by the president, our strategic plan, and having had the passage, we were able to be very uh, direct and straightforward in the ambition goals that we have uh, related to results that we're wanting to obtain from the bipartisan infrastructure law. So I, I find it to be a really exciting time to be at the department. Um, you know, personally for me, um, I've spent over 25 years in public service and primarily in federal service. And I came back to the Department of Transportation 
because I felt that this was this historic opportunity to uh, incorporate into the existing very important missions of safety and efficiency and effectiveness goals around equity and climate and sustainability and the importance really transportation has to our nation's economy. So again, I'm really excited to be back at DOT and to be involved in this um, historic time. That's a wonderful sort of a synchronicity there between getting that, that those laws passed and being able to create the vision of the uh, secretary. So I was wondering, you know, could you give us a sense of the operational footprint that both of your organization, but mainly, you know, as a mission, as a critical mission support area for transportation, perhaps you could tie it to give us a sense of how the department's organized a little bit. Sure. So within uh, the Department of Transportation, there are over 660 budget and financial management professionals. And in fact, uh, at the center is my office, and we're currently uh, 65, and we set policy direction, guidance, and oversight, uh, in particular around budget formulation, execution, financial management, uh, as well as travel policy, payroll systems, uh, program performance, and enterprise risk management. And our most recent addition uh, with the passage of the Evidence Act is to improve evidence-based decision-making through rigorous program evaluation. So each operating administration has its own chief financial officer, and that's important because that's part of what makes up that 660 team of budget and financial management professionals. And some CFOs also have other corporate support services, including acquisitions, grants management, and facilities. We also have the Enterprise Service Center, um, which is based at the Mike Maroney Aeronautical Center in Oklahoma City. And it's a federal shared service financial management provider. Um, at present, it has 950 people. Um, in fact, over 620 of those are federal employees and the rest are contract support. And they focus on 20 customers in the federal government space related to an array of financial accounting and reporting. They also have over 35 agencies that uh, they provide information technology services to. And it also provides procurement systems and cybersecurity services. And they are participants in the government-wide, and I'm sure you've heard about these, Cybersecurity Quality Shared Management Office, CUSMO, as well as the Treasury Financial Management, CUSMO, of Marketplace. And so, so that's wonderful uh, sort of setting the context. So, you know, folks may be familiar with what a chief financial officer is. And I was wondering if you could tell us what a day in the life of the assistant secretary for budget and program, who also wears a CFO hat, what's your role? How do you lead? And, you know, in a sense of uh, how do you support the overall mission of the department? I think what's really critical is being a leader and setting the tone from the top around fiscal stewardship, accountability to the American public for the mission delivery that we've been entrusted to provide. Uh, we strive to really build a learning organization that has a virtuous cycle of continuous improvement. Uh, my personal goal in any leadership position that I find myself in is to improve systems, um, to strengthen an organization, and empower the people who are charged with fulfilling this exciting mission. And I think that, you know, my goal as well is to ensure that the good work that um, has been established continues even when I've left. With with that important vision that you have and the way you lead, 
I was wondering, what are some of the top, say, management challenges you face, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Well, I would say uh, some of the ways that I think about this, uh, and I sort of would talk about sort of three, you know, Mm -hmm. important challenges that we have. Um, One is to use this crucial time that we have right now to transform the department um, so that it's ready for the challenges of both today and tomorrow. And I bring to that uh, really adaptive leadership and a learning organization mindset. So if you're familiar with the Heifetz and Linsky adaptive leadership model, um, as well as, uh, you know, managing through transitions, uh, William Bridges, I've um, become a big fan over many years um, around how to help um, bring an organization to really having a a transition mindset and to be adaptive. I think the second um, major challenge that I see uh, that we need to address is building data analytic capability and integration of information so that it's readily available for senior decision makers. And I am working basically to champion the data analytic function in my office and partnering with the chief data officer and other offices as we build up that capacity at the department. And then the third is really human capital, and this has been an issue over many, many years, the multiple generations that are in the workforce, um, looking at retention, retooling, hiring, diversity, and equity goals, um, getting the right people in the right roles, and making sure that we're navigating the you know incredible dynamics of the future of work and what it means uh, to be in these jobs uh, in this day and age as we address the time post uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Sort of this hybrid environment of what's next. So, you know, given your background, Victoria, what has surprised you since taking on this new leadership role? So I have served both in career executive roles as well as in appointee roles. And this is the time that I would say I especially feel the urgency of time to act and to have impact. Um, As a political appointee in the Biden-Harris administration, uh, even if having served in career roles in in multiple uh, administrations, it's that uh, sense of um, import of the moment and to ensure that we're really able to have the goals embedded within the organization in a way that helps to ensure, again, that it continues beyond our time in in these seats. And so personally, uh, even though in any of my career executive roles, I may have served for a two or three year process and then moved to um, another service role, this has been in some ways maybe one of my longest tenured positions. Uh, And at the same time, it's the one where I feel more that sense of time and urgency to act. You know, would you tell us what your background is, if you don't mind? Sure, sure. So, you know, I think um, I talked earlier about my um, federal uh, career uh, and I would say Public policy hit me just right at the time when I really wanted to ensure that I was a change agent to improve things in our human society. And I think that I wanted to be uh, in the place where I was working to um, serve that change. And that was early on in undergraduate where someone shared with me a public policy school program. And I said, oh, that sounds like a perfect fit for the kinds of things I want to be able to do, which is really to make to make a difference. And I think that 
Uh, my sense of service has meant different roles at different times. Um, and the basic tenet is that it um, both speaks to my sense of purpose and my lived experience as well as my family's legacy. Victoria, you mentioned, you kind of alluded to this earlier, and it, it, it gets into the leadership question even more. Uh, I'd be interested in your sense of what is the what are the characteristics of an effective leader, and perhaps you could even drill down a little bit on what leadership principles you follow. So personally, I want to lead with compassion and a sense of purpose, and I think that that helps me to find the edge um, for change and to ensure that I integrate the heart. And this has evolved over time as I've uh, been able to see both different leadership styles and to try on different styles myself and to work with uh, diverse teams. And again, it's uh, being a change agent within large bureaucratic systems. Um, how do I maintain that sense of uh, continuing to, to press forward and ahead when often, um, you know, these systems are perfectly designed to be able to replicate what exists. And so I think that that's really the place where I come back to is the, the difference that I've seen different leaders take um, in transformational times. What is the U.S. Department of Transportation's financial management strategy and key priorities? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center of This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center of This Week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. This edition of the Center of This Week shares insights from Gerard Bedoric, former Chief Financial Officer at the General Services Administration, GSA. Gerard was instrumental in GSA's pursuit of robotic process automation and how he used it during his time at GSA. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you how it started. And it started uh, because uh, after a uh, year, nine months of us starting RPA, in the CFO office, other agencies were coming to us to, to learn what we're doing and how we're getting results uh, in RPA. So we had uh, a lot of interest, uh, and certainly there are other agencies that were successful in RPA as well. But what we uh, decided in uh, about a year after starting RPA was let's form a community of practice. And, and the community of practice uh, would be a mechanism for agencies to collaborate. So, you know, it, it, would, it would allow a finance leader or an acquisitions leader in an agency or, or a CIO uh, to uh, learn from other agencies that have already uh, started and made progress. So, so the COP uh, brought that all together. And, um, and then uh, the other uh, thing that helped us was uh, OMB uh, recognized our work and uh, asked GSA to co-lead the cross-agency priority goal of shifting uh, from low to high-value work through uh, automation. So the COP today is over uh, 1,200 members, uh, over 65 agencies, uh, 
We've put out a playbook. We did uh, a set of use cases across the federal government. We had over 300 last year. This year, we've collected those, and we probably have almost 1,000. Uh, RPA is, is, is growing across the government, and we also uh, set up a maturity uh, survey and a maturity matrix to look at uh, what level a program was at. And that maturity uh, survey is about automations that you have, capabilities of the program. Uh, process improvement is a big advantage of a uh, big, good, positive outcome of, of RPA because before you do an automation, you have to make sure that you've got uh, an effective, efficient process in place and that you uh, have that process standardized across the organization. So there are a lot of benefits. Uh, uh, and our, our state of RPA uh, report from fiscal year 19 to 20, we saw 110% increase in automations. And uh, we saw the average hours of capacity per automation go up by about 40%. So we're going to produce, produce that uh, for this fiscal year t- as well. And, and I think the results will be uh, really show uh, how much uh, progress uh, we've made in the federal government. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Victoria Wasmer. Assistant Secretary for Budget and Programs and Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Department of Transportation. So, Victoria, would you outline for us the financial management vision of DOT and what are some of the key priorities you're pursuing and how do they frame your overall vision? So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's really critical to be able to set the tone at the top. And I think that's to ensure that we're being sound financial stewards And also using systems such as enterprise risk management and internal controls to support our department's mission. I think that those are really table stakes for any CFO organization. I think the drive now is to uh, be a strategic business advisor, to be at the table to provide insights that's informed with the best data that we have available for the secretary and other senior leaders. There are trade-offs and decisions on where to invest time and what things should we do more of and what things actually should we stop doing. Um, I think answers to those questions come from knowing your operations, key performance criteria, and what your risk tolerance and appetite is for change. 
I was wondering, you, you've kind of alluded to it in the previous segment around the legislative drivers, but are there only are there other specific internal drivers or external trends that shape and inform the way you are leading your portfolio? Absolutely. There are many mandates. Um, I think most <laughs> derived from really a good place to make government more effective and efficient. And uh, I think the question is how to assess those mandates and determine which ones serve the organization in the delivery of its mission and what can you accomplish within existing systems organically and what may need a new capability of governance to implement. There's also value in assessing the bandwidth and the appetite for change in an organization. Again, going back to adaptive leadership, looking from the balcony and also what's the view down on the dance floor, um, and managing transitions, understanding that there's a life cycle of change. And you may be on the leading side, but there may be others who are really in that neutral place and other places where you can assume that there will be some resistance to the change. So I want to talk about specific initiatives and and, and that really hit in your portfolio, and as the COVID-19 recovery and support for the nation's transportation sector. How much funding, can you give us a sense of how much funding was dedicated to this sector, and how successful has the department been in processing, executing, recording, and reporting on these funds, and making timely disbursements? Such a critical question. As you know, the transportation sector felt immediate and severe impacts from COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Transit and rail ridership evaporated. Air travel all but ceased, and states and localities were facing really difficult decisions on how to maintain services. I think really thanks to three separate COVID-19 supplementals enacted by Congress, the department received over $100 billion to help sustain the transportation system and to position it for recovery as the pandemic abated. Over the last two years, DOT obligated over 90 percent, just $96 billion of those resources, and we've dispersed or expended approximately 65 percent. It's about $70 billion of that money. With these funds, DOTs issued more than 6,000 grants to airports from large airports to small and regional facilities to help offset lost revenue and maintain these important economic hubs. We also awarded more than 2,000 grants to localities to keep public transit up and running, including major light rail hubs to local bus services in rural communities, which helped frontline employees and health care professionals get to work and back home. We provided close to $4 billion for Amtrak to keep routes available. And we put in place a public-facing report that's updated now every two weeks on the DOT website that shows the status of these resources. You can't do that without a good financial management system or a robust financial management system. And I want to transition to that. Can you give us a sense of what you're doing at the department level and maybe within the operating administrations around financial management modernization of its processes, its systems? Absolutely. I think one of the things is we've uh, recently gone through an upgrade of our financial management system. We call it Delphi. It's Oracle-based. Um, and that is, uh, I think, in a, a good place to be a, a system of record 
um, that is uh, that that parent uh, relationship to other systems. We also have grants management systems, and it's one of the places that we have a special project and task force associated with assessing as we move forward in new and exciting discretionary grant programs um, how to make sure that we're uh, doing so uh, in light of business requirements and consolidating where it makes sense. We've developed important dashboard information. Um, we also have been utilizing other analytic uh, tools so that the public could understand what was in the bipartisan infrastructure law, and we've been making sure that that gets publicized. We have a guidebook um, that we worked on with the White House bipartisan infrastructure law team to ensure that states, localities, transportation authorities, and other potential uh, grant applicants were aware of the competitive grants that came out through the bipartisan infrastructure law. We're going to be updating on a routine basis and providing publicly a status of funds charts related to the bipartisan infrastructure law. As part of that law, we actually had to have a separate uh, DEFC code uh, included so that those funds could be easily tracked. Obviously, that's something that also will flow through USA spending um, via the Data Act requirements. And we've also been doing intense internal control organizational assessments to ensure we understand what exists now, uh, what we know needs to be put in place, and to work with our operating administrations to ensure that those things are instituted and uh, updated as necessary. So, Victoria, your department has received a clean audit opinion for FY uh, 2021. Would you tell us more about this accomplishment? Why is it so important? And more importantly, what goes into receiving a successful clean audit opinion? Thank you so much for that question because I know um, many, many financial management professionals <laughs> at the department and all across federal service, um, you know, re work really, really long and hard hours in order to be able to, uh, to to get to that kind of a result. And we are very proud of the fact that it was actually our 15th consecutive year of clean audits. Um, and I think 2021 was a particular accomplishment because – we had the significant COVID resources, which more than doubled DOT's funding. And we had to be able to get those resources out quickly and also to ensure the proper oversight. You combine that with the administration change and new leaders at a time of uh, the global pandemic. And I think the clean audit really demonstrates the commitment to financial transparency, integrity, and accountability to the American taxpayer. And it proves that the department is a trustworthy steward of public funds by accurately and effectively accounting for those resources. I would say, uh, you know, the president signed the bipartisan infrastructure um, the same week that we received that uh, clean audit opinion, and I couldn't have been more proud of that time. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, you know, getting a little deep into some of the issues you have to deal with given your portfolio, what is the department doing to strengthen its improper payment practices and reporting? Are there any programs that are being specifically focused on presently? Absolutely. I mean, the department prioritizes reducing improper payments through robust internal controls. And we've established aggressive goals to ensure payment accuracy. And that rate that we've established is 99%. Um, and, you know, as you know, that's an improper payment rate of 1% of or less. We've consistently been able to attain that 99% in recent years. And I think it compares favorably to the government-wide average, which hovers around 94%. 
We've bolstered our periodic and proper payment risk assessments in two ways. First, we've incorporated quantitative analysis in the assessments for the programs that have received significant funding from the COVID relief legislation. And second, we incorporated more robust fraud risk assessments into our routine and proper payment exercises to assist us to take the, those proactive measures when implementing the bipartisan infrastructure law. And I think I, I spoke to that a little bit earlier, um, but it is one of those areas that I think um, may be misunderstood uh, and one of those areas that we're trying to ensure in conjunction with our inspector general um, that we are seen as providing guidance, which aren't mandates, and at the same time are helping to provide the scaffolding for our operating administrations in terms of how to think about their programs. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. So as a follow-up, would you tell us more about any efforts to improve policy or procedures to monitor and report grantee spending? And I think you alluded to it earlier in accordance with the Data Act. Absolutely. I think earlier I was talking about some of those mandates, and I think, in fact, the Data Act is one of those critical (laughs) ones. Um, And it's really to help to make sure that the American public can see through USA spending what the federal government is spending. So a key part for us this past year was improving the quality of our financial assistance award descriptions to include plain language award purpose and project goals. I think these improvements are going to provide the public with a better understanding of the purpose of the awards and the intended benefits. We also implemented the unique entity identifier, um, which replaces a really antiquated Duns and Bradstreet system. Um, And I think that the unique identifier is there for recipients of both financial assistance and federal procurement awards. How is DOT supporting the U.S. transportation sector? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Leadership Fellow at the Center and host of its weekly interview program, the Business of Government Hour. The Center this week is our opportunity to inform and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the Center as a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal levels. This edition of the Center this week shares insights from Jay Hoffman, Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Patent and Trade Office, USPTO. Jay tells us about USPTO's hybrid first back to the office strategy. Well, thank you for that. As as I had told you before our interview, this is the topic that I'm the most excited to talk to you about and and talk to your listeners about. Um, You know, going back to probably four or five months after the whole COVID pandemic started back in 2020, I came to realize that When the pandemic ended, whenever that was, there were going to be two kinds of agencies, two kinds of businesses. The first kind is those that were going to offer full-time telework after the pandemic ended. The second type were those businesses or agencies that were going to offer full-time telework after the pandemic ended. They just don't know it yet. And we we intended to be the former, to have a hybrid-first CFO organization on the first day of a post-COVID work world, whenever that may be. 
And it starts with a vision that work is what you do. It's not where you do it. And once you challenge, you know, you wrap your head around that, then you can start working on some of the challenges of, of hybrid work. And I think one of the big challenges that I hear from my employees is this fear of missing out. Uh, you know, some workers, they don't really want to return to a traditional office setting, but they also don't want to miss out on career opportunities because they're working at home while a colleague maybe is working in the office. They, they don't want to be out of sight, out of mind. With that in mind, this is the commitment that I've made to my workforce, the hybrid first commitment that I've made to my workforce. We will provide the same work experience every day to every employee, regardless of where you choose to work. Whether you're working in our headquarters building, whether you're working in Hawaii, whether you're sitting in a conference room with me, whether you're sitting on a beach, we want you to have the same work experience every day, regardless of where you choose to work. And this requires that I have, and that my management team has, a hybrid first mindset. Understanding that on any given day, half of our employees may be in the office, half of our employees may be out of the office, but we need to assume that every employee is virtual. We need to ask ourselves, what are the technologies that we need to be successful in a hybrid first environment? What work processes do we need to be uh, have put in place? How do we set expectations for conducting meetings and engaging our people? And, and we're not waiting until there's a mass return to the office. We are right now, as we speak, outfitting our manager's offices, our conference rooms with the tools and technologies that we need to work virtually going into the future. We cannot go back to the days of the conference calls and the in-person meetings. That's simply not going to happen. We expect that 95% of our positions in the CFO organization going forward are going to be eligible to telework five days a week. This is after COVID. And we're looking to go even further. We're looking to allow positions to work remote where people can relocate out of the Washington, D.C. area where it makes sense. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. Just because you can telework doesn't mean that you have to telework. And we're giving our managers a lot of flexibility in how they implement this. At the end of the day, I think it's going to give us a huge advantage in terms of recruitment and retention. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org.
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Victoria Wasmer, Assistant Secretary for Budget and Programs and Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Department of Transportation. Victoria, I'd like to transition to roadway safety in particular, but the National Roadway Safety Strategy. Could you tell us more about some of the core initiatives associated with this strategy, and what role does your organization play in meeting some of these issues? I have to say I'm very, very proud of the department in establishing the National Roadway Safety Strategy. And I would say that because when I first started in federal government, I was in the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in OIRA, the Office of Management and Budget, which is where I met Dan Chenock, yep. uh, who was one of your colleagues. He and I were, were co-policy uh, analysts there in OIRA. And I oversaw uh, some of the surface modes in Department of Transportation in terms of regulatory policy and subsequently went over to the budget side of OMB and, and oversaw the, the budgets for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, and the Federal Railroad Administration. And I personally was impacted when my brother lost his life, uh, unfortunately, during a crash uh, in 2000. And it's definitely one of those places that I have felt um, that need to see an improvement in our society as we think about roadway safety. So the National Roadway Safety Strategy is really a, a major safe system approach um, to help address this ambitious goal of reaching zero roadway fatalities. We call it Vision Zero. Safety, as you know, is a top priority. It's the North Star for the department. And the National Roadway Safety Strategy really represents a departmental-wide approach to work with stakeholders across the country to achieve this goal. There are five complementary objectives that correspond to the safe system approach, and that's safer people, safer roads, safer vehicles, safer speeds, and post-crash care. So DOT has robust federal funding resources, including existing formula funds for states, local governments, and other entities, as well as through the bipartisan infrastructure law. We have new programs such as Safe Streets and Roads for All. Uh, in addition, we launched a comprehensive Complete Streets initiative. My office is really integral in ensuring that this critical funding that's needed to meet this strategy is in place and it's being used effectively. And likewise, we're responsible for the oversight and review of the performance goals for the roadway safety strategy, as well as the program evaluation associated with the Evidence Act requirements. Wonderful. Another initiative I wanted to talk to you about, Victoria, is the Justice 40 initiative. Can you tell us more about that particular effort and how does it seek to address the transportation infrastructure and public services gap? Absolutely. Um, the Biden-Harris administration created the Justice 40 initiative to confront the issues of underinvestment in disadvantaged communities. And I think this initiative is going to help bring resources to communities most impacted by climate change, pollution, and environmental hazards. At DOT, Justice 40 is an opportunity to address the gaps that are there in our transportation infrastructure and public services by working towards the goal that many of our grants, programs, and initiatives allocate at least 40 percent of the benefits from federal investments to disadvantaged communities. So through the Justice 40 program, um, we're going to be working to increase affordable transportation options that connects Americans to good-paying jobs. It flights climate change and improves access to resources and quality of life in communities. 
in every state and territory in the country. I think this initiative allows the department to identify and prioritize projects that benefit rural, suburban, tribal, and urban communities facing the barriers to affordable, equitable, reliable, and safe transportation. We also want to assess the negative impacts of transportation projects and systems on disadvantaged communities, and we're considering local community leader investments so that they're consulted in a meaningful way during a project's development. So my team works really closely with others in the department to review and monitor the efforts to achieve the Justice 40 goals, Um, and I think it's in alignment with our performance goals on equity in climate and sustainability. Well, you mentioned climate, and we we did talk about safety and sort of intersecting climate and safety on our roadways. Could you give us a sense of what the department's doing in that area? Because, you know, we're seeing extreme weather events, and that has an impact on our infrastructure. What's going on in that particular? It's so true. And we, through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, have a new program. It's called PROTECT, and I'm going to tell you what it stands for because it is a long title. (laughs) Promoting Resilient operations for transformative, efficient, and cost-saving transportation. So we have both formula program dollars as well as competitive grant dollars, and it's available to states over five years to make transportation infrastructure more resilient to future weather events and other natural disasters. And it focuses on resiliency planning, making resilience improvements to existing transportation assets and evacuation routes, and addressing at-risk highway infrastructure. In fact, in July, we announced the new guidance associated with the $7.3 billion that's provided in formula funding um, for states and communities, again, to, to better prepare for and respond to extreme weather events, as you shared, wildfires, flooding, and extreme heat. It's truly a first-of-its-kind investment, and it's made possible by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. And I think that later this year, we'll be issuing the Notice of Funding Opportunities, or we call it the NOFO, for the Discretionary Grant Program. I think PROTECT is building upon the administration's push to address the climate challenge and a whole-of-government approach to reducing greenhouse gas pollutions by 2030. Um, We talked a little bit earlier about the Inflation Reduction Act. There are many, many components there that are incredibly exciting. Um, And, in fact, we have additional resources uh, addressing transportation materials and embodied carbon associated with those materials through a grant program. And we also have, in the bipartisan infrastructure law, a carbon reduction program which provides $6.4 billion in formula funds for states and local governments, as well as the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program, which is a $5 billion program for states to help build out a national electric vehicle charging network. That's where I was going to go. My next question was right around that. What's the status of that network, and um, why is it so important? And can maybe you can allude to some of the next steps. Absolutely. Well, this past February, uh, the Department of Transportation, in partnership with the Department of Energy, created the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. And in that, that office is helping to ensure the allocation of the $5 billion resources for the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program. So that's called the NEVI program. And most recently, uh, in fact, just earlier in the month, On the 14th of September, 
we announced more than two-thirds of the electric vehicle infrastructure deployment plans that the states and territories had provided were approved ahead of schedule. So with this early approval, these states can now unlock over $900 million in the 22 and 23 funding for EV chargers across um, what is a 53,000-mile highway infrastructure across the country. And there's also a second competitive grant program that is available in order to allow EV charging access in locations throughout the country, including in rural and underserved communities. And that's going to be announced later this year. Victoria, today federal agencies recognize that risk is inherent and that managing risk must be integral to doing business. Would you tell us what you're doing in the area of enterprise risk management, leveraging it to inform your department's risk profile and to better anticipate, respond, and mitigate risks? Absolutely. Well, um, through regulatory actions and infrastructure investments, we've been able to manage the inherent risks that are associated with safely and efficiently transporting people and goods um, since the Congress established the department in 1966. Enterprise risk management really has helped enable the department to be more strategic and structured in that approach of managing risk, and we are leveraging that ERM process to gather and analyze risks from our operating administrations and to ensure that those are aligned with the strategic priorities that we have and we're identifying prospectively, gaps and weaknesses within our programs and our activities, and also to determine what areas need to be established to mitigate risks. So you mentioned this earlier a little bit. I'd like to get a little deeper into it, Victoria. What are you doing to empower your employees to drive innovation and become champions of change, moving away from finance as usual to a faster-paced, more agile, analytics-focused enterprise? I think, as I mentioned earlier, there's the sort of table stakes of the things that we're doing and wanting to also ensure that we're incorporating uh, a business advisor strategic element. And I think that that comes with improved data analytics and capabilities. We have a lot of information How do we make sure that that information is readily understood and available for senior leaders in a crisp and concise way? And I think that those are those places where we're addressing both the establishment of data analytics within my office, partnering with the chief data officer as well and across the department and other entities also focused on that set of goals and thinking about the existing team helping to provide opportunities to retool and to have additional training and also doing strategic hires so that we can bring on board uh, the talents that we need in data scientists and other capabilities to help utilize the information that we have to bring the insights that we need for our operations. Mm-hmm. I want to pick up on that last point around hiring. Are you doing anything um, different or new to attract uh, financial professionals or the data competency that you need? We have been very fortunate because we have, with the bipartisan infrastructure law, a strong partnership with the Office of Personnel Management. And through that, we, in fact, have direct hire authority in certain mission-critical positions. 
my team, in fact, right now is evaluating uh, a whole host of resumes that have come in um, through that um, open certification for financial management professionals. We likewise, across the department, are looking for a whole host of skills related to grants management, engineering, uh, safety professionals, and so forth. So I think it's it's a really important uh, partnership. And then I think as we look towards uh, making sure that our uh, position descriptions are uh, in par and up to notch. I've been in partnership with the CFO Council. In fact, there's a whole uh, strategic workforce initiative, and it's been one of the areas that we really want to help participate in, and I've had good partnership and participation from my fellow CFOs in uh, wanting to be strategic around uh, both the existing workforce but also how we think about that pipeline of new talent. In fact, the Partnership for Public Service um, provided an internship program this past summer. Um, We call them the FLIPS. And those folks, we had three FLIP interns uh, who came in uh, and helped to support us in our performance management. And we had an additional FLIP intern who was helping our Office of the Secretary CFO in the support of data and analytics. And we've actually been able to work with her to bring her on as an intern um, because she is working locally and going to school. So that's super exciting to be able to see that pipeline of an internship experience then to a co-op experience. And, you know, maybe in the future, we will be seeing those folks convert to full-time federal employees. That's terrific. You know, um, I was wondering, other agencies, other CFOs within the federal space, are, are you leveraging the application and use of emerging technologies? And what I'm, where I'm going with as like robotic process automation, RPA, intelligent automation, are you doing anything like that in your office to kind of transform the operations? You know, we are using uh, robotic process automation, RPAs, in various offices across the department, um, and including our financial management shared services provider, uh, the Enterprise Service Center, who I talked about earlier, um, who processes the majority of our accounting transactions. And we're looking really at ways to expand the use of um, this and other emerging technologies within AI to improve processes and gain efficiencies and to better achieve our mission. I think that there is a place where we also have to address concerns around cybersecurity risks, um, both with our inspector general and our um, financial statement auditors. Um, But I feel that we're in a place now, um, given more adoption across the federal government, um, to be able to help ensure that it's well understood and that these risks are mitigated as we develop um, RPAs and other aspects of AI going forward. Advice for considering a career in public service when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. 
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Victoria Wasmer, Assistant Secretary for Budget and Programs and Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Department of Transportation. Victoria, how are you leveraging partnerships and collaboration to improve operations, achieve program outcomes, and execute on your mission? So one of the things I'm mindful of uh, as the head of financial management across the department is that I have many, many partners. And those partners aren't only the other operating and administration CFOs and the OST CFO, but it's also the program partners. It's the executive branch writ large, um, including the Office of Management and Budget, which, of course, I have an affinity for having having come from there. Um, it is our Hill partners and other critical stakeholders, which include our grant recipients. And so we have a, a lot of stakeholders in a lot of places where um, we need to improve um, our working relationships and collaboration. But ultimately, it really comes down to the traveling public, to the American public. Can they see the difference this infrastructure is going to make? Initially, we're going to have complaints because people are going to see a lot of construction going on. <laughs> and some things are going to be slower before they're faster. Uh, and at the same time, our hope is that uh, in the time span that these things come into the fray, we're going to be able to see people's transport costs go down. They're able to get to their destination faster. And it's actually going to be in a way that is reducing the transportation sector's impact on the environment. Right now, the transportation sector is the largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's one of the reasons why I feel that it's our time now to act to be able to make this transformation. And at the same time, um, you know, that doesn't uh, happen easily. It does mean changes uh, not only the way how, how we operate, but also in how each individual person thinks about their commute and the ways they get from here to there and the way their goods and services are delivered. As we come to the close of our conversation, I was wondering if you could maybe highlight three key takeaways you'd want our audience to to glean from our discussion and maybe tie those into the future. Where do you see the future going for your organization? I am so grateful to be able to have this opportunity to serve at this critical time. My set of goals are really to be able to build that organization that's able to address the challenges that we have now and the challenges of tomorrow. And I think in the partnership with my, the secretary and my other colleagues in senior leadership at the department, our goals are to be ambitious and bold and to ensure that we don't lose the momentum that we have now from these generational investments that we've been entrusted with. And I think as part of that, I'm trying to be mindful that my organization, which had been focused on one way of doing things, is evolving and needs to also be adaptive and learning new ways of doing things and how to support the transition to those new ways of doing things, including utilizing different tools, um, thinking about data analytics, looking at new technologies, and perhaps thinking about uh, things in new and different ways. And so 
at the same time, while we promote that change, we also have to understand people's own individual situations and circumstances. And that's where I get back to this idea of integrating the heart. Mm -hmm. Each person is coming to work and they want to have a sense of purpose and the alignment of what their work is doing day to day to help meet the mission of the organization. And I think that that's one of the reasons why our strategic plan is so important because it provides, I think, a framework um, of the goals of the department and how that aligns with the administration. And at the same time, what does that mean to that individual employee? So I think that that's the tie as a leader that I want to make with my management team is that each of them can work with their staff to ensure that there's that tie to the purpose that that individual is doing, whether they're processing a travel voucher or addressing a payroll challenge or designing a forward-facing status of funds report that's going to be going up on the bipartisan infrastructure law website. You know, all of them are making a difference in the work that they do every day. So my last question, Victoria, is what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in public service? I have to say it's an incredibly fulfilling activity, and I have found uh, true purpose in primarily public service. Um, I've had an opportunity to serve in different aspects of public service, both in local government as well as federal government. I think that there are individuals who are change agents who may not be in the public sector but are advocating for various things in their community. And I think that a public service career um, allows you to be able to get paid for doing that work. So I just think it's terrific. Um, I would encourage anyone who's thinking about a public service uh, job or that pull for public service to look into the opportunities that are available. Now, you can't do that without having a little bit of an appetite for a wait, unfortunately. I wish we were hot, you know, faster in being able to bring on board the talent uh, that we know is out there. And at the same time, um, it's worth the wait. I know initially when I was applying for my first federal role, I think it took about four months. And that was actually fast at the time. So I know uh, for, for many people who may feel disheartened that they've put in an application and haven't heard back, um, you know, don't give up. Um, you know, get out there, do informational interviews, talk to people, look at the job applications, put in your resume and, uh, and continue to build your network. Um, it's an exciting career. And I'm excited to also see those opportunities where we're bringing on uh, young people into these professions because I think that they also see that life is about um, so many things and that ability to have that sense of purpose that a public sector job provides to you um, is something that provides meaning on a day-to-day basis. Well, Victoria, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining us today. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, thank you so much. Really glad to be here. Thanks again. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Victoria Wasmer, Assistant Secretary for Budget and Programs and Chief Financial Officer at the U.S. Department of Transportation. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, 
And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.